0: Für das beste Netz müsst ihr keine Rich Kids sein. Die Telekom Magenta Mobil Young Tarife sind nämlich günstiger als ihr denkt. Jetzt bis zu 50% sparen und 10 Gigabyte am Top für alle unter 28.
1: Dr. Chris Smith, good to have you back. Yeah, good morning, how are you yeah, doing? I'm, I'm really lecker. I don't know if you understand the word lecker, but I do, mean absolutely.
0: Oh, brilliant. I do. I'm well enough 1st um, well I've been in the country enough times to, to f- come familiar with the lingo. Uh, I tell you what, I'm very jealous because you do not want to set foot in my country at the moment for, for all the obvious reasons, but also the weather. Oh, my goodness. It's traditional for English people to always start talking about the weather, but this is the worst weather I've had in a really long time. So. There's a combination of snow and sleet, and it's about zero, and, and it's absolutely horrible. So the, the strong wind just blows this stuff straight th- almost through you. When you go out, this this is is not good. And this is after a a, a relatively mild kind of winter. I know. It's mad, isn't it? We had warmth for longer than we should have done. Then it suddenly went into the deep freeze in sort of the first part of December where it was minus 10. And then it was 15 degrees for the week leading up to Christmas. And then after Christmas, it's sort of was average and then it was warm again and then it went ridiculously cold again ridiculously cold for a week where the ground just was absolutely solid and pipes were freezing and everything then it came up warm again, and now we're back to this. It's it's oh, it's really weird. It's like a boat sort of lurching side to side in a in a heavy swell. It's ridiculous, but but not pleasant at all. So, anyone thinking of visiting, don't don't come at the moment. You're not going to have a not, pleasant trip. It's not,
1: it's not exactly a blue day in Cape <laughs> no, Town. No. Very gray, very London in Cape. But it's going to be short lived. Back to thirty and thirty five degrees next week. Um, Doctor Smith, the Naked Scientist. The question in about the web, Alice. Um, but before we go there, let's just take this call because calls are expensive and I want to prioritize them. Frida out in Belleville, go ahead for the naked scientist. Uh, hello. I would like to know, um, I'm always eating bread that's past the date, but I've, I've read about um, uh, bread. They used that, That's how they first found out antibiotics. That's why I'm wondering if there's any if there's anything in it
0: (laughs) hi frida well the answer is that when you put best before dates on any kind of product it's there as a guideline it's not a tram line a ring fence you have to stay inside it's intended that we use our common sense because there are many foodstuffs which if stored the right way are going to last for longer than that date and that date doesn't mean it one minute before that date is okay and one minute after that date is suddenly poisonous. It's a guideline and also it's it's really to cover the sort of reputation of the people selling it to you that the product quality can't be guaranteed beyond that date. So you, you have a less good eating experience potentially if you consume the item after that date. doesn't mean it's poisonous. You have to use common sense. Now are you going to kill yourself if you eat a bit of moldy bread? The answer is no. All of us have done that and you, you've I guarantee you're not alone in having the experience where you're chowing down on the sandwich and then you think, this tastes a bit earthier than perhaps it should. And then you look around the side of the sandwich and one of the crusts has got some little bluey green bits on it where it's been going a tiny bit mouldy. Am I giving the game away as to how I tend to live my life? Well, I'm still here. Uh, you, you refer to our antibiotics and you're quite right. There are moulds that go on foodstuffs like bread, which include the penicillium class of moulds which is what Alexander Fleming accidentally contaminated his plates with back in the 1920s and discovered antibiotics. The mould produces a chemical which diffuses out around it and happens to kill off some classes of bacteria. So you're not, you're not going to necessarily medicate yourself by eating that mould, but you're definitely not going to kill yourself either. But this doesn't mean this is an excuse to go and eat any old thing which has not been poorly stored, because lots of people every year get ill because of food that's been poorly handled, poorly stored and poorly cooked. So the bottom line is you must use common sense, but a bit of bread with the odd spot of mold on it that you discover incidentally is not going to do you any harm.
1: Let's stay with Best Before Dates. This message reads, good morning, Dr. Smith. How dangerous are expired pain meds? I took a couple of aspirins that I found out later had expired two years earlier. No side effects. How do pain meds
0: expire? Well again this is a safety thing when we're using drugs we need to know that they're going to do what it says on the packet and they're going to do it reliably otherwise we shouldn't be giving them and so for safety reasons they always have a best before or expiry date on the packet because then you know that the drug has not deteriorated beyond a lifetime that we know is safe to use now is there again like the bread. A sudden change that occurs at one minute to that date, this drug works, and one minute after this date, that drug doesn't work. That's obviously nonsense. For safety and in a hospital setting, we would absolutely never use unless it was an emergency, something that had expired. We would always dispose of those sorts of drugs safely because then we know we're giving someone something that we've done our best to make sure it's going to work. But in an emergency situation, if you had a packet of pills and you had a really bad headache and it was a day after that date or a week after that date or a month after that date, we can't be expected to believe, based on what we know about chemistry, that the drug was fine right till the moment of that date and then suddenly it wasn't. So you've got, again, use your common sense. Things that have been properly stored, that in fact they probably haven't deteriorated much over that time, are probably, for a one-off use and a headache pill, going to be absolutely fine. There are, on the other hand, some drugs, some substances, which are really temperature sensitive. They really do decay and t- deteriorate if you keep them at too high temperature or you keep them for too long and those ones you absolutely shouldn't run the risk of but they're not the kind of thing that you're going to find in your in your average fridge but really again it comes down to common sense headache pills aspirin probably not going to break down in the packet very robust and resilient molecule some other more specialist medicines antibiotics and things that need to be kept cold those things do have a shelf life and you should be a bit cautious especially if you're relying on them to save you from a life-threatening risk of, of infection for example you mustn't do that
1: Okay, looks as if we have a couple of questions um, In that line My mum used to feed me moldy cheese when I was little uh, Natural penicillin, question mark I really was sick Well, I'm kind of partial to blue cheese as well And have got a WhatsApp uh, voice note in On the same topic Let's take a listen to it. Hi Chris, good morning uh, What about moldy cheese? It's like mold on cheese uh, I doubt that that's good for you But yeah I'd like to know about that when you've got slight mould on cheese. Over to you, thanks, Chris, naked scientist. Great show, mate. There's John Keltimer. Bye.
0: Thank you for the nice feedback. Well, the answer is that dairy products like cheese and like yoghurt are fermented products. And in fact, they were discovered because people accidentally, when they collected milk from sheep and goats and cows contaminated it with microorganisms from the environment but also microorganisms naturally on the animals bodies and they also helped to uh, by, by storing these milk products for longer periods of time gave those microbes a chance to act and the food got fermented and it turned into cheese and yogurt and when we make cheese we have a culture of microbes which include bacteria and fungi which change the cheese they, check, they act on the proteins and the other chemicals that are naturally in the milk, and they manipulate and change them to become cheese. Same with yogurt. So when we eat those sorts of foods, we're already eating a soup of bacteria. And certain blue cheeses, you mentioned, um, Clarence, that you really like um, blue cheese and, and some the sort of more exotic cheeses, they are given those colours by the addition of particular starter cultures and microorganisms, particular bacteria and moulds, and they are placed in conditions that encourage these additional moulds from the environment or from the starter culture to grow even more on the cheese. And when they grow, they're using some of the protein that's in the cheese and in the in the milk products, and they are breaking it down and using their biochemistry to produce novel chemicals that include some antibiotics that will change the bacteria that, that are growing locally. They will also encourage other microbes to grow more and that's why you get those blue-veined cheeses. Those are moulds that are growing and the product and the metabolism of the mould is a change in the flavour. And there are all kinds of exciting exotic chemicals in cheese. No evidence that they're able to change your dreams, which is one other claim, that eating cheese before bed gives you weird and wild dreams. I don't think there's any evidence that you absorb the chemicals in the cheese to any great extent that could affect your dreams. But it's a nice theory. But it's based on sort of plausible fact, which is that there is an enormous cocktail of chemicals secreted into the cheese by the huge number of microbes that are living on the cheese, around the cheese, and made the cheese.
1: OK, let's go to a really higher high grade question about Webb, Alice, peering into the, the distant past. It's really a time machine, and it's uh, found, apparently, um, it, 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 it found galaxies far too big. or It defies uh, what they thought, the theories, the assumptions about the early start uh, to, to the universe. Where, where is this taking us?
0: Oh, well, since the James Webb Space Telescope launched, which was a, a Christmas a year ago, We've already got data coming in from what is the most powerful telescope that we have placed in space ever. And because we have a big collecting area on that telescope, in other words, it can harvest light from a massive mirror. It can get way back in time because it can pick up light, which is very, very long, far travelled, very, very spread out across space, very dim and therefore very distant and very red shifted and by redshifting, as you spe- send light across the universe, because the universe is getting bigger, the light that comes across the universe stretches out and becomes red shifted. And so the more red shifted the light, the, the farther away and the farther back in time it must have come from. And so we can begin to probe some of the earliest parts of the universe. There is a part of the universe's existence, not long after it was born, that is off limits to us because there was no way of seeing light from that period of time. But we can get very, very close back to this point where... The there's, there's clarity in the universe and stars are forming and galaxies are forming. And so we can begin to see the structure that was there in the early days because the universe is, you can think of this as a bubble that's expanding. And if we can work out what was there in the early days, it informs the structure of the universe we have today. This will in turn inform the models, uh, in other words, our simulations of how the universe is growing, evolving, evolving. And the big question, what's its ultimate fate? What will the universe ultimately end up looking like? I mean, these are big questions that are going to go on for billions of years in terms of the evolution of the universe, but it's, it's really useful for our understanding of, of how everything's structured. So using this very dim light from the very vestiges, early vestiges of the universe, helps us to understand what the universe looked like very close to its origin. We're, t- we're talking, you know, when it's literally millions of years old or just a handful of millions of years old compared with the 13.8 billion years that it is today and once we understand a bit more about the structure of the early universe we understand more about what must have happened before that to give rise to that structure so it begins to enable us to see beyond that point where we currently can't see uh, and predict what must have been there to give us the universe we have today
1: Okay, so that's a little bit about that let's go to Ivan is in Bloberg. Ivan, your question for the Naked Scientist. Oh, we've lost Ivan, unfortunately. But good day, um, uh, Dr. Smith. Why do we get relief of an itch when we scratch
0: it? The reason that this happens is because we have in our skin a population of nerve cells that are itch-specific, and they run through the skin up to your spinal cord, and when they are active, they say to your spinal cord, this patch of skin is itchy. And the spinal cord then integrates information from other nerves coming in from the same area that say where it's itchy precisely. And this is then relayed onto your brain. There's another population of nerves that lie alongside those in your skin that signal pain. And if you follow those, they come into the spinal cord. And when they're active, they say to the spinal cord, this patch of skin hurts. But they also have an input to an inhibitory system that turns off the itchy nerve cells. So when you scratch your skin, you trigger the pain nerve cells, and the pain nerve cells feed back into the spinal cord and turn off the itchy nerve cells, making you feel relieved. Why does it work like that? Well, what's the purpose of an itch? The purpose of itching and scratching is to alert us to a particular body area that something is trying to invade. Most itching is caused by parasites or something that bites through the skin, crawls over the skin, or is trying to gain entry to your body through your skin. So if you make an itch reaction in that area, it draws your attention to it and you know to then sort it out or remove the parasite or take steps to avoid that happening in future. So it's almost like a trip switch, the itch, and then the pain, when you scratch, resets the trip switch and turns things off. Good morning, Dr. Chris. You called it. Uh, it's called a stupid question time
1: uh, this time around. How long would it take for someone, say, living in the Sahara Desert to get used to the bitter cold uh, of the European winter? Anthony out in Mowbray asking a question. And I'm assuming the answer is never.
0: Uh, I'm still not used to it. And I've been living here for nearly 50 years. The answer is um, We're very adaptive as a species. We're very good at adjusting and adapting and it takes time for some things to happen, but some things we can do almost instantly. So the first thing you do is use your brain. We're endowed with a big brain as a species and you take steps to not get cold. What do you do? You put more clothes on, you stay indoors, you stay out of where it's very windy or rainy. So we change our behaviour, in other words. There's also a change in your metabolism. Your body very quickly registers, I'm losing more heat. So your body changes what it does in terms of where it sends blood around your body to keep more blood close to your core, and that it's losing heat from certain parts of your body. So it says, I'm losing heat, I need to increase my metabolism. So it boosts your internal thermostat. And it then in turn says, well, I'm burning more energy. I need to order more fuel supplies. So it makes us hungrier. So all those things kick in in the short term. And then there are longer term changes to other things which adapt over time. You can change the rate at which you sweat. And if you ask trained sports men and women who go running a lot, they'll, they'll tell you that they, they've trained up their sweating ability. And the body changes its ability to lose heat and retain heat uh, over And you get better at doing that. And so part and parcel of training for sporting events, which is all about thermal control, that is something that can happen over a long period of time. And so that will be a slightly slower rate of change to accommodate a, a change in living conditions. So there are short term changes, and there are long term changes, and they break down into behavioral things we can do instantly, metabolic things that happen pretty quickly, like eating body temperature and moving blood to your core away from your peripheries and then longer-term things like how much you heat you, you lose through sweating and that kind of thing. Okay, we've got Ivan back in Bloberg.
1: Ivan, go ahead. Hi, good morning. Um, thank you for the interesting topic. Um, I just wanted to find out, I heard that there's certain people concerned about the higher incidence in average death rates in European and Western countries. Firstly, is, is this true, um, above average uh, death rates, and secondly, uh, what, what would the doctor attribute this to?
0: Oh, hi Ivan. You're referring to the metric known as the excess mortality rate, and this is a measure of how many people are dying that we wouldn't expect to die. So let me explain. Every year, we know that in a country like the UK, there's probably about 600,000 people will die. And because the population is rising chiefly because of immigration rather than births, probably the number of newborn babies each year is about the same, 600,000. And for years, we've been plotting who is dying each year and when they're doing it. So we've got graphs going back decades that show a, a seasonal rise and fall in death rate. And you can compute an average So you know, on average, how many people are dying at any one moment in time. And if you've got the average for all the years previously, you can say, well, it's reasonable to expect that the number we see now should be the same as that that previous seasonal average. Therefore, if you plot today's number and it's radically different, something must be going on. And this is done for countries all around the world, and it provides a really good marker for uh, a number of things. But when you've got something like the coronavirus pandemic, you can look at the real true cost of that, because there are many ways in which you could misrecord someone dying of coronavirus. They might have coronavirus and then die of a heart attack, but the coronavirus could have caused the heart attack, but they'll be captured by excess mortality. So we can therefore get a real true view of what the impact of things like pandemics and so on is and when we do this for the flu we can see around the world the global excess mortality of the flu is up to a million people per year that die who otherwise we wouldn't expect to probably because of the flu. At the moment, what we're seeing in countries like the UK is that we we have had an increase in excess mortality. It does rise and fall. And in the first parts of the coronavirus pandemic, we saw a huge excess mortality because of high mortality, particularly among older people as they caught the virus. But then because those people had died, there were fewer people who probably, if they caught something else a bit later in the year, would have died. They weren't left to die. So the excess mortality dropped a bit again but on average we are up a bit at the moment and no one knows exactly what that is but there's a number of possibilities one possibility is that because people were stuck at home they weren't going to see their doctor with what they thought were trivial health complaints but which could have been the beginning of something things that could have been treated if caught early have been left and they've become untreatable a good example someone might have cancer If they'd gone to the doctor early, they might have had a treatable cancer, but if they ignored it, it becomes an untreatable cancer and then they become a mortality statistic. So it's possible that because of the COVID pandemic and people deferring follow-ups, check-ups and treatments for other things which at the time were rescuable have become life-threatening conditions that have then claimed those people. And that could be one reason why we're seeing the excess mortality that we are. But at the moment, people are still looking at this and trying to work out why in some countries, uh, there have been some blips in mortality rates uh, over and above what we would expect for the time of year.
1: Uh, a question in. I was reading an article online about how ty- uh, Tyrannosaurus rex would taste. Experts said it would taste terrible. Any thoughts on this, Dr. Smith? How would you have a mm.
0: rare meat? or oh, well done. Well, dinosaurs are birds' closest relatives. Birds are living dinosaurs. They've descended directly from the dinosaur lineage. So a good proxy for what a dinosaur would taste like would be to find a big bird and ask, well, what would that taste like? So small dinosaurs, which were flightless, ran around on the ground and laid eggs a bit like chickens, would probably taste a bit like chicken. A big one would probably taste a bit like an ostrich. Now, ostrich is quite tasty. Um, I, I didn't mind eating ostrich. So I would say probably dinosaur is very similar to big birds and therefore the best way to do it probably would be to roast it to be honest but when it's really big you know a job getting that in the oven aren't you so you'd have to chop it up and um and probably how would i do it um i do like roast chicken so i probably i'd probably foil coat it to start with and chuck it in the oven like a big turkey and then turn it frequently to baste it in its own juices and and then take the foil off at the last minute turn the temperature up and get a sort of crispy outside i think that'd be lovely
1: Uh, and and a period of time in the oven about a a, a year Uh, well
0: not cooking the whole dinosaur because unless you were cooking for an, an entire country i don't think you could eat an entire tyrannosaur in one go so you do it piece by piece and probably the same rule of thumb as we use for chicken which is about 20 minutes per half kilo plus 20 minutes is probably adequate
1: i got you loud and clear we got you loud and clear we appreciate you naked scientist dr chris smith answering the questions that have kept you out of sleep for such a long time and you'll have another turn next week